You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. Today is the last of our messages um, with the Modern Family series, and I have I have really enjoyed this series. I personally have learned a lot, and it's been a blessing to me. And as we were setting up this series. Um, several months ago, and we're thinking through what are the issues we need to address. This issue that we want to talk about here this morning is not only something that's addressed in God's Word, but unfortunately, it is a reality that we have to steer into um, outside the church and in the church. It's an area where the grace and truth and mercy of Jesus Christ needs to go. And so, in light of that, we began thinking, so who do we bring in to speak on, on this topic? And I want to ask you, how many of you have ever heard a sermon on domestic violence? Okay, so that's probably more than any other service. Most of you have it. That was true for me till about three hours ago. Now I've heard two sermons on it. I'm about to hear a third. But up till today, I had never heard a sermon on domestic violence. But this is an area that God's Word speaks into, and therefore we want to go there as well. And it's our great pleasure, our great privilege to have Steve Tracy with us this morning. Steve um, teaches at the University of Phoenix. He's been teaching on theology and ethics there for about 20 years now. And he received his Master's of Divinity and his THM from Western Seminary right here in Portland, then went to England and got his uh, PhD. And he and his wife, um, Celeste, have have a ministry Um, where they speak into abuse, speak into justice issues, and bring the mercy of God in a a powerful way. Um, Steve really is family, because in our history as a church, uh, there was a church named Eastmont Church that joined with Grace many, many years ago. And before that happened, Steve was actually there and was the pastor of, of Eastmont Church. So Steve, you are family in so many ways. We're so grateful that you can be with us. Would you please come and open God's Word with us? here this morning. Would you join me in welcoming Steve Tracy? Wonderful to be with you this morning. Well, Jay, not only is the, had you not heard a sermon on abuse, I've never preached one, uh, at least on domestic violence. I've done countless seminars around the world, but I've never preached a sermon in a church on domestic violence. So I am really thankful that the elders at Grace had the vision to do that. It's obviously a hard subject. It's not one any of us would like to think about. Um, But as you said, it's one that God's word addresses. It's a reality in our world, so we address it, right? Well, let me start with a word of encouragement. Um, In... Addressing domestic violence here at Grace this morning as part of a series on the family. You're obviously doing something rare. We've already said that. You're also doing something very powerful. Um, In surveys of women, evangelical women, who've experienced domestic violence, when they're asked, what two things could your church do that would be most helpful for women like you? The number two things lots of women surveyed the number two thing one and two that they said they wish their church could do are one address domestic violence from the pulpit and admit that it happens even in christian families and two say that it's wrong wow 
You know, sometimes we think, oh, we have to have all these new programs and new funds and blah, blah, blah. Sometimes it's just addressing it. So in doing that this morning, you are already making a difference. And I hope you're encouraged with that. Um, It's, again, encouraging to me uh, to be able to play a little role in this. Okay, let's jump right in. Quite a bit we want to say, and it is really ironic that uh, my first pastorate was Eastmont Baptist. Uh, We now live on the west side of town much of the year. I teach at Phoenix Seminary in the fall uh, from December until mid-August. We're here in the Portland area. Celeste and I create resources on abuse and trauma. And then I spend about two months a year uh, in East Africa, particularly the Congo, South Sudan, Rwanda, places that have had horrific kinds of trauma uh, and address this issue. Uh, Our daughter works with street children in Uganda, so we're able to help them. Our son-in-law is Ugandan. Uh, My wife and I, and really our whole family, our world revolves around issues of abuse and trauma. And people will often say, well, Steve, that would be so depressing. I mean, that, that just must be terrible. It's hard at times, but nothing gives me more joy Because I know God's heart is for the oppressed. God's heart is for those who have been wounded. And when our heart aligns with God's heart, there's joy and there's blessing and we get to see miracles. So uh, I I come into a sermon like this with a sense of anticipation that God wants to do some great things. And it is our privilege. Let me just remind you, um, again, really, really by way of introduction, we have resources that the secular world can't offer. You know, Portland has various battered women's shelters. I am thankful for that. Very thankful for that. Uh, Other resources in the community. But what the secular world can't bring is the gospel. And the secular world can't bring a Christian community that can offer hope and nurturing and love. So as unpleasant as this topic is, Jesus' followers of all people have resources from God to address it. So let's do that. Let's jump right in. A couple definitions, just so you know where I'm going. Uh, First of all, I want to give you a quick overview of domestic violence. Uh, Define it. Look a little bit biblically. We're not going to look at any one passage because there are lots of passages. We'll survey several. And then I want to take really the second half, the bulk of our time, give you five ways as a church you can respond Uh, in the most healthy way to domestic violence. So let's define our terms. What exactly are we talking about? Because if we're not clear on exactly what it is, then there's no way we can uh, respond to it in the best way. Domestic violence is the use or threat of physical violence to control a family member or intimate partner. That's relatively straightforward. It's important that we understand domestic violence is really an issue of control and power. Um, That there's a power imbalance, and hence, uh, generally the one who has less power is the one who's taken advantage of. That that makes sense. Uh, In a fallen world, sadly, because of our sin natures, we're inclined to misuse the power God gives us. Spiritual power, social power, sometimes it's economic power, uh, sometimes it's spiritual power. Um, But we use that in ways that serve ourselves and hurt another person. Notice in Ezekiel 22, it just really makes this clear that um, 
any kind of abuse, and here it's, it's physical abuse, is about uh, an abuse, a twisting of power. See how each of the princes of Israel who are in you uses his power to shed blood. They have oppressed the foreigner and mistreated the fatherless and the widow. It's interesting that Ezekiel the prophet gives three categories here of people who are abused. Bloodshed, oppression. Widows, orphans, and aliens. And really throughout human history, those have been pretty constant. Because in, in, in Israel as in much of the world today, those are the people with the least social and economic power. Widows, particularly in the ancient world, women in general didn't have much power. It's a very patriarchal society. So a woman without a husband has no advocate. She has no means of income. She is powerless. Powerful prey on that. And we see it constantly in Africa, um, in Congo, and Uganda sometimes. Uh, often when a woman is widowed, literally before the body's in the ground, family members are coming and taking everything. Um, there's a tradition in eastern Congo that if a woman inherits land from her husband. If she doesn't build a, a house on it within an X number of months, they can just take it away from her. Um, oppression built into the system. So widows, orphans, aliens. Those with the least power taken advantage of. Let me mention one other passage that's really relevant here to the definition. Because um, I've said domestic violence is, is the use of misuse of power um, to physically harm another, attack another, or the threat of attack. It's important for us as men because for most of us we have greater physical strength. And certainly in, in conservative religious context males have a level of spiritual authority and hence spiritual power that's that's greater than females so it's easy for us to to not recognize threats of abuse and not because we don't experience the kind of fear that women typically do Um, i'm a pretty big guy i've been very athletic my whole life i boxed in college i haven't known a lot of fear um, I, I don't worry about getting sexually assaulted or even physically assaulted except when I'm in the Congo and rebels have guns and then I'm scared to a high level. But um, I ask my students because I lecture on um, these issues every fall when I teach. Uh, I, will, I will ask the students, how many of you tonight, we have classes at night. I'll say, okay, class lets out at 10 o'clock tonight. How many of you have sometime this semester, maybe even today, in any way, shape, or form factored in the possibility of being sexually assaulted as you go out to the dark parking garage at 10 o'clock. And I'll start with women. How many of you have, have ever thought of that or factored that into where you park, etc.? Every hand will go up. I do the same thing with the men. I don't think I ever remember a hand going up. That's a really obvious example, but, you know, especially men let it sink in. Um, we're not going to intuitively understand with domestic violence the, the sense of threat and fear that women and children will often feel, inevitably feel, and hence we just have to be sensitive to that and take seriously if we're ministering to someone, talking to someone, and, and they're experiencing, we're seeing a real level of fear and anxiety uh, 
over a husband, boyfriend, I want to take that seriously. Even if they haven't been directly assaulted, it doesn't mean that there's not domestic violence going on. Um, threats are a big part of it. Notice in Psalm 73, um, the connection between physical abuse and threat. Pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their heart overflows with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Hateful words, verbal abuse. Loftily, they threaten oppression. Wow. What a sad description of physical abusers. So often, with physical abuse, threats are part of the whole package. And we know from the research that it's pretty common that early in a relationship, uh, a husband or a boyfriend will assault one or two times, and he may not do it again, but he doesn't need to. He's communicated all he needs to communicate. Either you give me exactly what I want, or you're going to get it again. So again, it's more than just a physical assault. Scripture bears that out. Um, And it covers a broad range of behaviors. Um, Again, from direct assaults to threats to destroying property. It's a wide range of things that encompass this, um, all of which are sinful, all of which are damaging, all of which God wants us to address. So how common is this? Of course, we'd like to think, well, every once in a while. I wish. Multiple studies bear out the fact that in North America, U.S. and Canada, very similar uh, cultures, one out of three to one out of four women will experience a, a physical assault from a domestic partner in her lifetime. Multiple studies. I've looked at the literature. That's an enormous, I mean, we're talking millions of people. And I'm not counting children here. And that's also part of domestic violence. Um, I, I will give you just one other stat. I'm, I'm not going to overwhelm you with statistics. I write on these things and eyes will glaze quickly if I give you too many stats. I understand. Just one more. Um, thankfully, there's, there's a good news, bad news on some of this. Government very carefully tracks child abuse rates, and we've seen in the last 15 years pretty dramatic drops. Um, There's a national incident study, and it was done again a couple years ago, and there was a pretty dramatic drop in child abuse rates, physically and sexually. Um, Neglect is still um, really high. Child abuse is still a big problem, but rates have gone down, thank the Lord. But that's been more than made up for with teenagers and young adults um, for a lot of reasons. Pornography, lots of things feed into that. Um, we, we know that uh, studies done, surveys of adolescent girls, teenage girls in high school, one out of five acknowledge having been physically assaulted or raped by a dating partner, by a boyfriend. And because we know abuse rates, self-reporting is low because of the shame, that's staggering. So that's all we need to, to say to know Wow, this is a common around, a, a very huge problem in our society, and that includes our churches. Hence, it's wonderful that we're addressing it. Three, I just want to, we're going to ask and answer a handful of questions, and then we'll do this, the, what do we do about it? Three, what does God think of physical abuse? Now, maybe it should be, seems obvious what God thinks, but again, most of you have never heard a sermon on domestic violence. I've never preached one. 
the number one thing women who've been abused say their church could do is to give God's perspective. So let's give it real quickly. It's easy. God hates abuse, and he calls his people to stand against it and to stand with the victims. You know, anytime in Scripture you, you, you hear God loves something or God hates something, our ears should really pick up. There are a limited number of things in the word of God that specifically say God loves this or God hates it. Abuse is one of the things, specifically physical abuse, scripture says God hates. Notice Psalm 11.5. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked and the one who loves violence, his soul hates. That is strong language. Now, of course, God delights in repentance. I did my doctoral work in the theology of Paul. Paul was a physical abuser. Paul, the greatest missionary theologian of the early church, was an abuser. So God loves to redeem abuse and abusers. The context here is unrepentant abuse. Uh, In this case, a man who delights in harming others is not turning from it, is utterly hard-hearted, unrepentant. God says, let me give you my perspective on that. I hate a man who does that. Proverbs 6, very similar. These six things the Lord hates. Seven are abomination, haughty eyes, a lying tongue. Last one, hands that shed innocent blood. God hates that. So let's close this with a positive statement from Micah. If you've been in the church a while, if you've read God's word for a while, which is probably not all of you, But many of you will be familiar with Micah 6, 8. It's one of my absolute favorite verses in all of Scripture because it summarizes what God wants. You know, sometimes we ask, well, what's God's will for my life? What does God want of me? There's so many commands in Scripture, and what exactly does he want? Micah boils it down. Hear, O man, woman. He showed you what is good. What does the Lord require of you? Notice it's not a long list. It's really short. To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's a summary of what God wants of his people. Notice it's not just to talk justice. Not just to even say you love it, but it's to act justly. And to love mercy. And we do it with a heart of humility. If we had the time, we could look at the context in Micah and it would be really apparent if the context is abuse and oppression. First paragraph in chapter three, Micah uses these pretty grotesque images of of his people being chopped up, their bones chopped up and put in a pot. It's metaphorical, but he's saying, you you abusers are destroying my people. It's as if you're, you're cannibalizing my people, you're destroying them. In chapter 7 that follows this he specifically mentions bloodshed so this justice mercy makes no sense in the abstract it only makes sense if there's injustice it only makes sense if there's injustice that leads to suffering and I find that most suffering around the world is directly or indirectly the result of injustice in some way shape or form So that's why God calls his people to justice and mercy, to act justly, love mercy, 
for those who have experienced any kind of abuse, oppression. And that certainly includes those who have experienced domestic violence. So that's what God thinks of it. And finally, does Scripture really tell us that this is common? Does Scripture say that this really happens in the body of Christ? (laughs) Yeah, I can summarize that real quickly. Yes and yes. Just, just let me give you a couple verses. In some of the things I've published, I give dozens and dozens. Don't even need to do that here. If you've studied the Bible at all, you know that in Genesis chapter 3, we have the first record of human sin, right? Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit that plunged the human race into sin. And, and their descendants were born with a sin nature. Question, how long did it take the human race from the time they fell into sin to begin to commit domestic violence. The next chapter. Chapter 4 of Genesis, Cain and Abel. Maybe you've never thought of that as domestic violence, but that's exactly what it is. Again, any kind of control through physical force or threat And there are other ways to control. There's economic, there's verbal, but that's usually connected with threat against a family member, brother and brother. First instance of domestic violence in the Bible is one chapter after the fall. And later in that same chapter, we have the first instance of of domestic violence uh, marital. Uh, It's a character named Lamech, who you probably don't know much about because there's not much in scripture. But we do know he was the first polygamist And we know that he threatened his two wives. Um, Someone had apparently done something against him. So he, to his wives, says, someone wounded me, so I killed them. Anyone hurts me, they're going to get sevenfold revenge on my part. Well, why would you say that to your wives? Because the message is, you'll get the same thing. First instance of domestic violence is only one chapter after the fall. But then they learned their lesson and for the rest of the rest of biblical history they knocked it off. Or did they? Two chapters later, Genesis 6, is when God comes to Noah and says, I am going to destroy the human race. Why? Maybe you've never thought of it in those these terms, but it's real clear in Genesis 6, it's because of bloodshed, because of physical abuse. That's why God sent the flood of Noah. Wow. And we're only six chapters in. And it continues on. Um, Many, many of the Psalms, dozens of the Psalms were written in a context of physical abuse and threat. Major and minor prophets come to the New Testament. And and we have, sadly, examples of Christians from, or I, I should say believers, include the Old Testament. We have King Saul, the first, first king of Israel, tried to kill his own son. And then we have David, King David, who wrote scripture, who was the man after God's own heart, guilty of, I think it was sexual abuse with Bathsheba, and then he killed several soldiers to cover up his sexual sin. Man, have you ever thought of King David, through whom the Messiah would come, being a physical abuser, but he was. And, And finally, I would note in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives a list of qualifications to be a church leader, an elder. One of those is that a person to be an elder must not be violent. Wow. 
So apparently, Paul's not going to give a list of things that don't happen. That would make no sense. Um, an elder can't be a Martian. An elder can't be green. I, no, you, you only list qualifications where there's potential for it to really happen. So Paul is very realistic, and ultimately it's God speaking to us, saying, yeah, this can even happen among people identified as potential church leaders. So that raises the question, what do we do about it? I'm going to give you five things by way of a healthy biblical church response. What do we do about uh, this huge, sad issue of domestic violence? I've mentioned that God's given us some unique tools. I I won't add to that, but but keep that squarely in mind. We have the gospel, we have Christian fellowship, and when it's healthy, that makes all the difference in the world, which leads me to the first thing we can do. Foster authenticity. Foster authenticity. Any kind of abuse. Now, in my book on abuse, I identify five types, physical, sexual, verbal, spiritual, and neglect. Um, all, all five categories of abuse produce great shame, and that's certainly true of domestic violence. Uh, the, the victim will often just feel innately that something must, have, must be wrong in them that this happened. They blame themselves. Often the perpetrator will tell them it's your fault. And sometimes well-meaning friends, family, fellow church members will, will say things again to reinforce that. Often when a woman discloses, or sometimes a, a young person, um, that they've experienced domestic violence, the first question is, well, what did you do? Clear implication is, well, you must have done something to have ticked him off, which means it's partly your fault. And, and that may not be what the person's trying to communicate, but that's what's heard. Uh, so for a lot of reasons, abuse survivors are filled with shame. So what's the antidote to that from God's perspective? A community that is authentic. A community that embraces biblical values, that lives out the fact that we together are wounded and need a Savior. And we're not pretending that we're perfect. If we were, we wouldn't need Jesus. We come to the cross, each of us, because we are in need. Because we're sinners we sin against others, and we've been sinned against. So an authentic community is, is honest. It's not pretending. And, and there are wonderful passages that help us know what that looks like. James 5.16, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other that you may be healed. In uh, a healthy community, we're honest with our struggles, and that's how we get help. That does wonders for people who've either perpetrated or experienced any kind of abuse, including domestic violence. To be in a place where there's that kind of honesty. Um, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Often abuse survivors don't want to share because the few times they've tried, people just clam up. It's like, I don't want to hear that kind of sad story. But God says... In the body of Christ, we're to be authentic, which means if your heart is broken, I should be willing to carry that with you. If you're rejoicing, I rejoice with you. If you weep, I weep with you. That's authentic community. Uh, finally, I love Galatians 6 too. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. We carry the wounds and, and the weight with each other. Um, world can't offer that, but we can if we're courageous. 
Let me give you a quick example of how I saw this happen very recently in one of my classes. Contemporary ethics class I teach every fall uh, at Phoenix Seminary. I take two weeks on domestic violence. Did again this fall. At the end of the first night, um, one of the men came up to me, and I I could see when he came up. He he was very troubled in his countenance. He waited till everyone else left. He said, Steve, I abused my wife for years, and I was an elder in my church. And I physically, verbally, and spiritually abused her. I convinced the other elders that she was the problem. The church removed her from her ministry position and left me on as an elder. And it wasn't until she finally got enough courage to leave me that I began to wake up. Thankfully, God did a deep work in their lives. They are back together, and he seems truly repentant. He said, I think maybe the Lord's leading me to share some of this with the class next week. Wow. Now, if that was part of your history, would you want to share that with a a room full of seminary students? He did. He did it very courageously. And he went one step further and added, two weeks ago, I verbally abused our adult daughter and I cursed at her and it hurt her deeply and I'm still trying to break these patterns and I really need your prayer. Wow. I've hardly ever heard a man who's been an elder and is now a seminary student talk like that. But what he didn't know is that there was at least one other woman in the class who grew up in a very violent home. I know that because she came up to me and began to tell me a little bit of her story and then just started weeping and shaking uncontrollably and couldn't even finish. All I, all I got from her was that her home was so painful that she can't even bear to think about it, what she experienced. Can you imagine how that ministered to her to have a guy who'd been an elder who's a fellow seminary student and of course seminary students, like all of us, want to look good who's willing to say, this is, this is who I am and this is what I'm struggling with. I know that ministered to her in such a profound way. That's what authentic community does. It takes courage. Second thing we can do is <laughs> listen. James 1.19 says that we should be slow to speak, quick to listen, and patient. Some of us I don't know if Christians are worse about this, but I think because we have God's word, sometimes we, first thing we want to do is is show them in scripture what they need to do about their problem. And James would say, wait a minute, listen carefully. We're not ready to give any biblical admonishments until we've heard exactly what's going on. And abuse is, is very complex. There are a lot of things about abuse that don't make sense. I mean, just in a purely logical way. Um, often I will hear people say when they hear about a woman who's been years in an abusive marriage, well, why doesn't she just leave? That's stupid. Just, she should just leave. Well, okay, that's logical maybe for you and I who aren't in this situation. But unless I listen to her, I won't understand that maybe he's threatened if she ever does leave him that she will kill him and she knows he's serious. Or maybe she knows if she leaves him that'll leave the kids. And even if she divorces him, there'll be joint custody and the kids will be at his mercy. There are a lot of reasons. There are a lot of factors. I won't know any of that unless I listen. And I call it courageous listening, which means listening with a view toward letting that person change me. 
some of what they share will no doubt break my heart. It changes me. Well, how else do we carry one another's burdens if we don't listen courageously and be willing to enter into hard, dark places with people? We don't have to go looking for it. There's enough of it out there that if we're loving and, and willing, people will begin to share hard stories um, and we courageously listen. Three, educate. Deuteronomy 6, 6, and 7 to parents says we're to teach God's truth diligently when we sit in our house, when we walk by the way, when we lie down, and when we rise up. So when are we supposed to teach God's truth to our children and others? 24 hours a day. We, we don't all have biological children. I'm blessed to have three. But we all, many of us do. Some of you have grandchildren. I'm still waiting. Um, I told my kids I'm going to make them retake the course I teach at Phoenix Seminary on, on sexuality. Um, I'm ready for grandchildren. But many of you have grandchildren. We, we all have nieces, nephews, children at church that maybe you teach, you minister to, neighbor kids next door that you, you in some way, shape, or form can influence. God would have us educate. Give, give his perspective on how men are to treat women on why abuse is wrong, etc. Just a a quick illustration. About a month ago, my nephew had a, his 10-year-old, he turned 10, so his uh, parents organized a birthday party, which for a 10-year-old boy, you have flag football in the park. We had a great time. The the guy who was on my team was a great quarterback. Partway through the game, his sister came up to him. She was on the other team. I... I didn't, it didn't look like anything happened except all of a sudden he hit her in the face and split her lip wide open. And I immediately jumped in and, you know, tried to help him see how wrong that was. He literally turned away from me. He was so hard-hearted. Um, my brother-in-law who organized the party took them both aside, dealt with it really well. When they came back, my little nephew jumped in and he said, Boys do not hit girls. It doesn't matter what a girl does to you. It's always wrong. God calls us to protect. In fact, hitting a girl is a crime, and you can go to jail. (laughs) Good job. Now, where do you think he learned that? From television? From, From rap music lyrics? No. From dad. In that case, and probably mom as well, but especially dad, educating we can do that and it makes a difference for advocate I love this next picture that was taken in the Congo we had an opportunity to speak to a group of about 70 former rebel leaders who had been enfolded into the government army virtually all of them had raped, pillaged, murdered we had an opportunity to speak to them my friend Dan had fought in Iraq He stood in front of those soldiers and said, I, like you, have been a soldier. Some of my fellow soldiers oppressed women, violated women, and you're doing it too, some of you, and it's wrong and God hates it. These are are dangerous people. I was kind of looking for the exit. What a great example of a a Christian man standing up and advocating for women and, and others who are oppressed. Men, we can do that. And we can all advocate, but I think especially men. And finally, 
on a really positive final note, claim God's blessing. As you and I address domestic violence, however God calls us to address it, whether it's to courageously listen, educate, advocate, it means lots of things, it's individual, but as we do that, when our heart is aligned with God's, God says, I want to bless you. I don't have time to read it, but Isaiah 58 is about justice and mercy for the oppressed. Um, and there's this huge list of blessings that if we will commit ourselves to standing on behalf of the oppressed, that includes the abused, God says, I want to pour out the floodgates of blessing. I will answer your prayers. I will heal you. I will be your rear guard. I'm going to cause you to flourish on and on. That's true for individuals, families, and churches. Let me close in prayer. Lord, you know what we need this morning. I'm sure some need healing. Some need your conviction. Some need guidance. We pray you will direct us that we would respond in a most biblical, godly way to this difficult topic. We're thankful, Lord, so thankful that you are a God of redemption and healing. Thank you for the cross that, that redeems our shame. We need that, Lord. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.